As Phil said, um, my name is Greg, and I'm one of the elders here. Um, some know me affectionately as Viper. I don't know how that came about. I guess they think I looked like a movie star or something, but um, I'm, just, I'm just thrilled to be here this morning. I, before I became an elder two years ago, I, I wouldn't have imagined that I would be given this opportunity, uh, so I hope I don't blow it. Um, before, we, before, I just, before we get into... Um, the message. Let me just give you a little bit of my history, kind of help explain how I came to be in front of you today. I was, uh, I just celebrated my 62nd birthday, second September 1st. Thank you. Uh, my wife Pam and I will celebrate 38 years of wedded bliss. <laughs> March, March the 6th. We were asked to, to give a, a talk several years ago at one of the Mary D breakfasts. Here And I, I told him, I said, uh, we have never had a serious argument or fight. However, we have had some intense moments of fellowship. <laughs> so many intense moments of fellowship. We have um, two awesome kids who are both adults now with their own families. Uh, our, our daughter, Amber and Jeremy, my son-in-law, and three adorable grandkids are here. Uh, our son Brandon, his wife Kate, and three more adorable grandchildren live in Nashville. Um, I, Pam and I both grew up in Baker. She grew up in the Little Church of Christ in Baker. I grew up in the Presbyterian Church. In fact, my mother carried me to the Presbyterian Church for nine months before I was even born. So I had seniority on most of them by the time I even got there. As was a tradition, like all good Presbyterian kids, I was allowed to join the church at age 12, which is what the Presbyterians call the age of consent, and um, which gave us permission to start taking communion. That was a big deal. You know, you got to be 12, you became a communion member, and you got to celebrate communion. And Easter Sunday that year was the first year I, uh, I did that. Continued to grow up in the Presbyterian church. However, I was saved at a revival at First Baptist Church in Baker, where my buddy Sam Johnson, who just snuck in the back door, his father, Alan, was pastor for how many years, Sam? 30. Um, at the end of a revival, I walked the steps and prayed a prayer and opened my heart to Jesus and asked him to be Lord of my life. And I got home. <laughs> uh, true story. And I just couldn't wait to get home and tell my mom and dad the good news and uh, the first thing my very Presbyterian mother told me was, don't let those Baptists baptize you. <laughs> okay, Mom, you know. I'm like, what do they do? Do they, like, hold you under for a longer time? And I didn't let them Baptists baptize me for quite a few years. Um, Pam and I were married in the church. Pam was on staff there. Um, we had a very special relationship with our pastor, who, had to, who was called Ted Rowling. In fact, my kids grew up. And probably still to this day, he referred to him as Papa Ted. And uh, so years later, we moved out to, to Central, and we began attending Zor Baptist Church, which was, for me, a pretty big stretch, being a, like, pre-life Presbyterian, okay? But um, we were there at a time of tremendous growth, just great things going on, and uh, Pam was on staff there as well, too. After we left Zor, we were at a stream for five years, and then we just kind of I don't know, wandered in the wilderness, I suppose, for a few years, trying to find what we had at Zor, and we found out that it didn't exist. That was a very special thing at a special time, and we were just glad to be a part of it. But all the while, whether we were at Zor or Struma or wandering, 
We were coming to the ring on many Sunday nights. I can remember bringing our kids to the ring before they could even drive. Y'all remember a lot of those days, right? Still meeting in the gym at Parkview, stacking the chairs 10 high at the end of service, right? Full release. Um, so we followed the ring over to the BCM at LSU, still in our Sunday morning mode of uh, going to church and going there. And then not long after they made the transition to grace, we felt the Holy Spirit saying, you know, you need, need to dig deeper into, uh, into the ring. And so we went to the new members class, completed the blue book, had our elder one-on-one join the church. Uh, Pam and I served on the Mary D. Uh, team for several years, and, and uh, I was privileged to be a part of the inaugural class of deacons. I uh, served there for three years, and it was a joy. And then just over two years ago, I was asked to to, uh, to join the elders, elder board, and it's just been sweet and beautiful. Um, first year was a little much because not only was I trying to figure out what being an elder looked like, but that was right after we moved over here. So it was being an, an elder in a new thing, a new church. So uh, I was so privileged that I got to to be there, sit at the table with Josh Causey and Phil Zito and Taylor Vernon and Adam Iglesias. Just tremendous. Um, so when Josh told us a couple of months ago, Phil and Chase and I of his plans to be in Zachary these three Sundays, um, he really didn't give us a text. He just said, choose your own adventure. And when he said that, I, I knew immediately, well, I was a toss-up, uh, either between grace and Job. I've always been fascinated about the story of Job. Of course, now, Taylor Vernon, about a year and a half ago, preached on Job, so I'm not going anywhere near that. <laughs> okay? But um, during one of our family trips, vacations to the beach years ago, I discovered the, the uh, author and pastor, Max Licato, and just really fell in love with his style of writing. The first book I read was called No Wonder They Call Him the Savior. And then I read his two books on grace, In the Grip of Grace, and Grace, uh, More Than We Deserve, Better Than We Can Imagine. And one of the things I used to love that uh, Max said in the book was uh, grace changes everything because grace is everything. Okay, so when you know, I began praying and asking for God... Um, for some specific verses, specific share things to share this morning about grace. One morning, a couple of weeks before Christmas, during my, my time of silence and solitude in the mornings and coffee, lots of coffee, um, I came across Titus 2, 11 and 12. So let's go ahead and look at the book of Titus. I'm not going to walk around a lot either because I just can't. Um, before we... Starting there, let me give you a little background. So this, Titus, this is the only time we see Titus even mentioned in the New Testament. And so it's, Titus is famous right in between 2 Timothy and Philemon. It's only three chapters. Paul's letter to Titus. Now, just a little bit of history about the island of Crete. It is the largest of the Greek isles, the fifth largest island in the Mediterranean. And just like Greece, all the Greek isles were overwhelmingly populated with Gentiles or pagans, as Chase said last week. You know, polytheistic, worshiping many gods. I mean, they had a god for everything under the sun. They even had a god of the sun. Greek mythology holds that the island of Crete was the birthplace of the god Zeus. Now, you may recall Zeus was a guy that liked to throw down the lightning bolts. 
And when it thundered and lightning and a storm back in those days, the people believed that was Zeus that was angry with the mortals and he was tossing down lightning bolts. Legend has it that one day when Zeus was, I guess, hanging out on the, uh, uh, up there on Mount Olympus, he saw a giant lizard swimming across the Mediterranean Sea on its way to Crete. Assuming that the lizard's intention was to eat, devour, destroy the island of Crete. Well, that was Zeus's hometown, so he wasn't having it. So he tossed a lightning bolt down, turned this giant lizard into an island. And we know it as the island of Malta. So understand the Gentiles at this time were steeped in this kind of mythology and legend. Um, Unlike the Jews, who at least had... Uh, the law of Moses on their side and, and a general understanding of, of the nature of God. So we find, uh, let's look, um, before, before we go to our key verses, which is chapter 2, 11, and 12, let's start off in chapter 1. Let's look at verses 5. Yeah, just verses 5. Verse, Titus 1, verse 5. To Titus, my true, this is four and five, I'm sorry. To Titus, my true child in common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Titus has got a job, and uh, it's a tough job, and yet it's an important job. So let's look, look, skip on down. So the next four verses deal with the description and the job requirements and the, the, uh, the calling of an elder, what an elder is supposed to be. You know, we use it, our church uses it, I'm sure every church in the world that has elders uses this as part of their elder qualification process. So let's look down at 10. This is why Titus's job is so hard. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. Especially those of the circumcision party. Anybody want to guess who the circumcision party was he was speaking of? Jews. They must be silenced since they are upsetting the whole family by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars. Cretans, by the way, are inhabitants of the island of Crete. Christians are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of the people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Titus has got a lot to fix in the churches on Crete. Um, just a little backstory there. Even though I said Crete and Greece itself herself was predominantly Gentile, there have been evidence of some small pockets of Jews that inhabited the island of Crete um, several hundred years before Christ. Experts put their numbers at about a thousand. So it wasn't many. Well, one year, a bunch of these Jews decided to make the, the trip across the Mediterranean to Jerusalem to go celebrate the 
festival of Shabbat, also known as the Feast of Weeks or Festival of Weeks, which is 50 days uh, after Passover. In fact, in Acts 2, we see that on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descended, there were Christian, Christian citizens in that crowd, that throng of thousands. So these Christians got to hear and see all that the Holy Spirit did in the lives of those people. You know, they, they heard their own language spoken by some Galileans. They heard other languages. So there were thousands. So people from all over the known world were there. So these Christians now, filled with the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, take this back to the island of Crete to start the new church of Jesus. Now, many in that, in first century, simply call the church of Jesus the way. So they had a pretty uphill battle. Probably felt like salmon swimming upstream most of the time because they were trying to plant a new thing, a church of Jesus, in a place that may have not even heard about Jesus. I mean, this is before the days of social media and 24-hour news coverage. The word may have not even gotten to Crete about anything about Jesus' public ministry or his death, burial, resurrection, and uh, uh, ascension. And so here's these Jews coming back telling everybody, we've got a new thing. You know, forget what you did in the past. Here's, here's the way. We, we know the way. And apparently they did so without any real leadership because that's why the churches were falling apart. That's why Paul put Titus there to, in a sense, make problems go away. Paul is telling Titus, in, a, in essence, you know, the wheels are coming off the bus, Titus. You need to keep the bus from going in the ditch. Um, now, when my daughter Amber was playing basketball in high school, there was one of her teammates that was not a particularly good ball handler or shooter, but one thing she was really good at, making problems go away. If the opposing team had one or two real hot shooters or good ball handlers, and our girls were having trouble guarding her, perhaps getting into foul trouble, the coach would simply signal this girl to come off the bench and in about five minutes, she got all five of her fouls and sat back down. <laughs> and let me tell you, when she fouled, she made it count. There was no doubt, you know. But I saw time and time again how she managed to change the momentum of the game. You know, when she, was, she went out and the game started back up, it, it, it looked different. Many times it worked out good in our favor because she accomplished what she had to do. I like to call her the fixer. Because she, pro- she made problems go away. Okay, that, that was her role, and she relished her role. But um, So what Paul is trying to t- get across to Titus, he's really trying to p- paint a picture of, of a healthy church here. Okay, So let's go ahead and look at Titus 2, 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So again, Paul is trying to paint a picture for Titus of what a healthy church looks like. In much the same way that Moses gave the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel, Titus has given this word to the, the brand new Christians on Crete who had never behaved in the way that they were... Uh, expected to behave now as a church of Jesus. I mean, you know, Moses came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, gave them to the Israelites who for over 400 years had been in captivity in Egypt. You know, they adopted the, 
the Egyptian, uh, Egyptian culture. They intermarried with the Egyptians. They worshipped a lot of the Egyptians' gods. For the most part, a lot of them were essentially Jewish citizens and forgotten how to live for the Lord. So they got, you know, I mean, things like, we, we think about now, it's so basic. Yeah, don't kill, don't steal, don't covet, don't worship other gods. But for these Israelites who had been in Egypt for so many years, they just, they did that. And Moses was basically telling them, not anymore. You know, I'm bringing you a new thing. Well, Titus is, is in short, bringing us a new thing. Now, it's important to know that the continual operation of God's grace in the lives of Christians is one of Paul's strongest desires for the church. As evidenced by him telling Titus that grace saves and grace teaches or trains. So if you're a note taker, this is going to be right in your wheelhouse. And even though Josh is usually fine of giving you three or four points, I'll just give you two. You're welcome. There's two points, saves and trains. That's what grace, now, is this all grace does? Of course not. But these are the two things that Paul really wanted to drive home to Titus for him to drive home to these new Christian Christians. That's kind of hard to say. Um, So Paul wrote 15 of the 27 books of the New Testament. Actually, we call them books, but they're letters. So every one of Paul's letters was either to an individual or to a church. Of the approximately 170 times that the word grace is used in the New Testament, Paul uses them over half. Paul actually uses the grace, the word grace, more in the New Testament than the entirety of the Old Testament. Um, And with just a handful of exceptions, he opens and closes every one of those letters with grace. Every one of them, even even this one. Let's look back at, at, yeah. Chapter 1, verse 4. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. That was his favorite greeting. Uh, and he closes it the same way. He closes most all of his letters the same way. Which has led some people to call Paul the apostle of grace. He was all about grace. One of Paul's favorite things to say was, God gives grace upon grace. Never ends. It never runs out. You know, Max Lucado likes to say that God never turns off the spigot of grace. It never stops. Grace is most needed and best understood in the midst of sin, suffering, and brokenness. We live in a world of earning, deserving, and merit, but those things just bring judgment. This is why everyone wants and needs grace. Grace kills, sorry, judgment kills but only grace makes alive. A shorthand version for what grace is, is mercy, not merit. Grace is the opposite of karma, where we're told that we get what we deserve. Grace, in grace we don't get what we deserve, and we get what we don't deserve. Because of our sin nature, what we deserve is death with no redemption or resurrection. J. Grisham Machen wrote that the very center of the core of the whole Bible is the, go- the doctrine of grace from Genesis 1-1 all the way through Revelation 22-21 where John closes his letter to the church saying, the grace of the Lord Je- be Jesus be with us all. That's how John closes. That's the last verse of the Bible. 
He goes on to write that grace is the most important concept in the Bible, Christianity, and the world. It is most clearly expressed in the promises of God revealed in Scripture and embodied in Jesus Christ. Grace is the love of God shown to the unlovely, the peace of God given to the restless, the unmerited favor of God. B.B. Warfield wrote that grace is free, sovereign favor to the ill-deserving. John Stott wrote, Grace is love that cares and stoops and rescues. I really like that one. John Bridges wrote that grace is God reaching down to people who are in rebellion against him. And Paul Zoll wrote that grace is unconditional love toward a person who does not deserve it. Now that we've kind of laid a foundation for what grace is and does, let's really camp out on verse 11 where Paul tells Titus that grace saves. God's grace is his active favor, bestowing the greatest gift upon those who deserve the greatest punishment. When Paul said that the grace of God has appeared, that means it's penetrated our moral and spiritual darkness. And upon those sitting in darkness and the shadow of death, the grace of God has dawned. In much the same way, when the sun peeks his head over the horizon, it appears. God's grace made its appearance through salvation. God's grace came to rescue us from the greatest possible evil, namely the curse of God upon sin, and bestow upon us the greatest possible gift, namely the blessings of God for soul and body throughout all eternity. Male or female, old or young, rich or poor, all are guilty before God. And from all he gathers his people. Grace and salvation do not pass up the aged because they are aged. They don't pass up women because they're women. They don't pass up slaves just because they're slaves. It is dawned or appeared upon us all, regardless of age, gender, or social standing. The grace of God is his beneficial activity on behalf of humans, both individually and corporately. God's grace is based solely on his love and our total inability to meet his standards. God's grace is a gift that we do not deserve and cannot earn. In fact, without grace, there can be no salvation. Ephesians 2 tells us that grace is foundational to salvation. I attended a conference, well, a workshop on evangelism many, many, many years ago in preparation to go out in a, in a neighborhood and go do some door-to-door evangelism. evangelism. And I was taught what's known as the three alones. Anybody in here remember the, the three alones when it comes to salvation? We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The three alones. The greatest personification of grace is personified in Jesus Christ, making salvation available to all, regardless of race or gender, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. It's available and free for everyone. The 16th century theologian, a guy named Jan Jacob Van Osterzee, his his real name, Jan Jacob. How many of you in here when I said his name immediately started singing John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt in your head? Doesn't quite have the same Jan Jacob Van Osterzee, but... Imagine with a name like that, he probably was picked on a lot, almost like being a boy named Sue. 
He wrote, The grace of God is the reason why every member of the Christian faith can and should live a Christian life. And he also wrote that the grace of God is the great penetrator, dispelling the darkness for all and bringing salvation to all. Grace saves. Verse 12. Let's look where Paul tells us that grace teaches or trains. Now, the Greek word used in the original text means to instruct or educate. That word also means to discipline or chastise. Some other words that we can put in there would be counseling, comforting, encouraging, admonishing, guiding, convicting, and rewarding. We have to understand that education in Christian behavior is seldom a painless process since it involves the correction of human behavior, which by its own nature stands in opposition to God. God's grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. There must be a conscious, willful repudiation of thoughts, words, and actions that are opposed to godliness. There must also be a rejection of the desire for things, pleasures, and values derived from this present worldly system, which is hostile to God. Mr. Van Ostezee goes on to write that the true learning of heaven must begin with the unlearning and laying off of all that stands in the way of the development of the new man. Grace gently leads and guides. It does not throw things into confusion. It does not suddenly and forcefully upset the social order. When grace takes over, the believer rejects ungodliness, just organically. This rejection is a definite, deliberate act to give up what is displeasing to God. Mark Twain once wrote that no one sleeps their way into heaven. It's an intentional act. Grace trains us in order that in the here and now, we may live lives which display an enhanced relationship with ourselves, others, and God. So this is what Paul tells Titus. The grace of God teaches us to live self-control, upright, and godly lives in this present age. In other words, self-control simply means to be sober-minded or sensible. Upright denotes conduct that cannot be condemned or conduct that is above reproach. In other words, lives that are pleasing to God. I keep looking at my watch. There's been, I've gotten a lot of encouragement about this, this, this day the last several weeks. I've even been asked several times, how long are you going to preach? That was a com- a common thread through. I told someone the other night, I said, I, I, I think I can probably have us out of here in just enough time to beat the Methodists to the Golden Corral. So, so don't worry. Amen. Got to get that prime rib before it runs out, right? Self-control simply means that the Christian's relationship with themselves. So, upright deals with the Christian's relationship with others, and godly refers to the Christian's relationship with God. Think of it this way. Um, chapter 11 tells us what God does for us. He saves us. 
chapter 12, that once that salvation happens and we get taught and trained, we're te- we teach and train, then that's kind of what we do in him, through him, and for him in chapter 12, after the salvation and after the, the teaching and training. Now, this was, again, this was um, a tough job for Titus. We know that right after Jesus' resurrection, that there were some Cretans, or citizens of the island of Crete, who had made their way to Pentecost. And so that's, that's how this whole thing happened. But what they were lacking was leadership. What they were lacking was spirit-filled grace within their midst. So they had a lot, had a lot to overcome, you know. Um, Christians live every day by the grace of God. We are here today by God's amazing grace. We get to call the Most High God, the Maker of all things, our Father because of grace. We get to call Jesus, His only Son, our Savior, our friend, and our brother. That's what grace does. That's what grace accomplishes. Grace upon grace. We receive grace according to the riches of God's grace, and grace drives our sanctification. In fact, Grace grounds and empowers everything in the Christian life. For example, grace is the basis for our identity. Grace is the basis for our standing. It's the basis for our behavior and for our holiness. Grace is the basis for our strength of living. Grace is the basis for our way of speaking. Grace is the basis for our serving and our sufficiency. Grace is the basis for our response to difficulty and suffering. Grace is the basis for our future hope and our hope beyond death. My friends, the gospel is all about God's grace through Jesus. That's why Paul calls it the gospel of the grace of God. The gospel or good news of the grace of God is the message that everyone needs. Right on time. Um, Going back to the first verse when Paul was warning Titus about the, the circumcision party. It's probably in quotations in your Bible and mine as well. Um, yeah, those are new Jewish converts. And it wasn't the first time that Paul and Peter or any of the members of their team of evangelists and church planters ran afoul of the new Jewish Christians because they were still adamant about adhering to the law of Moses and circumcision. I mean, you know, within eight days after every Jewish male's birth, they had to present them for circumcision. And that was, that was a big deal. I mean, they, they, they hung their hat on the fact that because they were circumcised, they were special in the eyes of God. We know that just a few years before this, we have Paul and Peter and Silas and a bunch of their teams uh, in Jerusalem or what was known as the Council of Jerusalem, or the, or the Jerusalem Council. And the basis of that entire meeting, and there were probably hundreds, maybe even thousands of, of, of people from all over the, the known world, and the big debate was about circumcision. You know, and, and the, the Jews' insistence that the new Christian Gentiles, the new con- converts to Christianity from Gentiles, who of course were not circumcised, that they must be circumcised. And, of course, you can read about it in Acts 15, and you can read Peter's brilliant response to that whole nonsense. 
And, and essentially what he says is the last line of, of it is that circumcision or uncircumcision account for nothing. You know, that had to really cause a stir in that group, you know. And so he also, Paul also warns Titus about not getting involved in, um, in arguments, in, in, in empty talk. You should know that just like baseball is our national pastime, for any Jewish man, arguing is their national pastime. I'm serious. They love to argue and debate the meaning of the scriptures. There's an old saying that if you put 10 Orthodox Jews in a room and pull one verse out of the Torah or the book of Moses and ask them for an interpretation, if they stay there all day, you would get 10 interpretations. And Pam and I had the privilege to travel to Jerusalem several years ago, and you can see them. They're on the street corners. They're in the market. They're in the hotel lobbies just going at it. You know, just they love to argue about the, the meaning of, of Scripture. Now, when that argument is over, uh, they literally kiss and make up. They can go at it, you know, vehemently for hours, and they'll kiss each other on each cheek and hug each other and leave each other with a blessing of peace. But not before arguing for some time aggressively. Paul tells Peter, don't get caught up on that. You know, that's just going to be a waste of time. You're not going to be able to fulfill your mission and, and, and basically keep this church from imploding, you know, or collapsing from within. Stay focused. Stay on target. Do what I'm sending you to do. Don't worry about all this outside nonsense. Grace upon grace. God never shuts the spigot of grace off. Thank God. Would you stand with me as we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we're just standing in awe of your amazing grace. Grace that's from everlasting to everlasting and never ends. We pray that you will start a fire in each of us that causes us to want more and more of your grace, to learn more about your grace, to experience more and more of your grace. Help us to remember that Grace extends from this place because right outside the doors of our church are the mission field. Empower us, equip us to take your amazing grace to a a lost and hurting and broken world. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have several ways of responding. Uh, If you're our guest, first of all, welcome. We love having company. But you may see a lot of moving around the room. That's okay. That's what we do. You can. We're going to sing some songs. You can stand and sing. You can sit and sing. You can stand and pray. You can sit and pray. You can come up here and pray at the steps. We'll have elders and staff here in the front. If you'd like someone to pray for you or pray with you, there are giving stations on the far outside of the stage there where you can make a monetary gift. Uh, there are also prayer cards, which you'll see there. And these little cards simply say, Jesus Christ has the power to dot, dot, dot. And I promise you, these will be taken up after church. They will be read and they will be prayed over this week. We do them every week. 
So we also have two communion lines open. And uh, so this is the kind of where you come up and you take the bread, or in this case, pieces of gluten-free tortilla. Uh, you take that, and you'll hear by the person who's holding the plate that the body of Christ broken for you. And you'll dip it in the grape juice, and that person will say, the blood of Christ poured out for you. You don't have to be a member of our church to take it. You just have to want what Jesus is offering, and that's himself. Before we do that, though, I wish you would help me. I ask one more thing of you. Help me sing just the chorus of this great old hymn of the church.